Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. Series 11 on the history of girlhood will start in September, but in the meantime, there is an anniversary coming up this week. August 21st will mark 242 years since an incredible woman named Elizabeth Freeman sued her owner for her freedom, and she won. In celebration, I am going to play today an interview about her that I did with Kathleen Langone of the People Hidden in History podcast. Kathleen began historical research by doing her own family history, and she has branched out from there with episodes about Flora MacDonald, the 18th century revolutionary, and Connecticut witch trials, among others. She is a particular expert on the Gilded Age miniature portrait painter Amalia Kusner, who you may remember from an earlier episode Kathleen did for me in Series 10. Our first collaboration was on Elizabeth Freeman, and here is that interview. Hello, dear listeners. I'd like to welcome Lori to the People Hidden in Podcast series. And we're going to talk about a fascinating character today that Lori's done a fair amount of research on. This is going to be about Elizabeth Freeman, who was actually a Black slave in Western Mass around the time of the Revolutionary War. And I must comment that I just didn't understand the extent of slavery in Massachusetts in those earlier times. That, to me, was surprising. But to start out and learn about Elizabeth Freeman, Lori, can you first tell us how you learned about her and then what got you obviously excited about researching her further? Sure. So on my podcast, I do um, women's history and I organize it around themes. So last fall, I was working on a series that's called Women Who Escaped from Slavery. And so I was looking, you know, I was just looking through the records for for a variety of women. So I have women from different times and places and who found their freedom in different ways. And I came across Elizabeth Freeman because she's one of the few who's, she's not a runaway. She actually sued in court. So she found her freedom through a completely legal process. And that's quite different from some of the other slave narratives that we have. That's very unique, certainly for that day and age. So uh, fill us in on her background, what her life was, and maybe we'll bring her up to the point where she decided to, to seek legal justice for her situation. Sure. So one of the hard things of, of researching any slave is that there's not a lot of records. Uh, she wasn't literate, like most slaves. So all we can kind of do is make some some guesses. There is no birth certificate for her. So Elizabeth Freeman was probably born around the year 1740, probably in the state of New York, but there are no hard records for that. We're extrapolating that from how old she appeared to be later in life. Elizabeth Freeman and her sister Lizzie would have been given as a wedding present to a woman named Annette. It's spelled with a J after the T. It's clearly a Dutch name, but she's also called Hannah I think because she would have been joining, you know, more English colonists for whom that would have been an exotic name to them. So she's either Annette or Hannah. She married a man named John Ashley, who had a 3,000 acre estate in Western Massachusetts. So he was a large landowner and there would have been a group of slaves in the household. Elizabeth Freeman would have been living in the household for 30 to 40 years before she even started this legal suit to get out of slavery. All right. So she's with the 
Ashley family now. Yes. Talk a little bit about her life here. And I know there was one incident that was recorded. She certainly wasn't treated well as the other slaves were not treated well. Maybe you could talk about that kitchen incident. Sure. So in the records that we have later, she seems to have had fond memories of John Ashley, but not about Annette. Annette is listed later as a woman who never overlooked anyone's wrongdoing but her own. So she was quite a harsh woman to work for. So the story about the kitchen incident does not actually even start with Elizabeth Freeman, who was called Bet at this time. It starts with her sister, Lizzie. So Lizzie was one evening making dinner for the family. She had some wheat to make a wheat cake, which wouldn't have been like a, a sweet treat as we think of it now, probably much more like a pancake. So Lizzie had kept back the scrapings of the bowl so that afterwards she could make a little cake for herself to eat. Now, this was not allowed. This was not where the slaves were supposed to get their food. So when Annette walked in just in time to see Lizzie popping her pancake in her mouth, she got very angry at the stealing, as she called it. It does seem very reasonable to me for the cook to be able to eat the scrapings of the bowl, but that, that wasn't the rules of the household. So Annette grabbed a hot shovel out of her fireplace and raised it above her head to bring it down on Lizzie. And this was when Bet walked into the room. She saw what was going on and she threw herself in between so that the red hot shovel came down on her own arm. So obviously, terrible injury, terrible injury. What is interesting about the story, though, is that there was no legal way to sue for assault from a slave. There's no, there's no protection for a slave. There were the standards of the community. So Bet refused to cover up that arm as it was healing, and it never did fully heal. She, she bore a scar for the rest of her life. But while it was healing, she didn't cover it up. She went about her business, and everyone would see it. And everyone would say, why, Bet, what, what happened to your arm? And she would just say, ask Mrs. A lot of negative feedback towards Annette, because even though there was no legal way to prosecute her, it would have been unacceptable in her community. She wasn't supposed to behave that way. So Bet later says that she thinks that Annette got the worst of the deal. But still, a very difficult place to live, obviously, when you work for a person like that and you have no escape. Yeah, two points I want to bring up. First of all, it's a great illustration of the character that Bet had defending this other woman, yes. putting herself in harm. And I think what you're saying, Lori, is that maybe there was some community or public shunning of Annette for having done this. I mean, I don't think any she came to any great uh, rejection by the community, but to your point that could show what this woman did to her. And that's yes. very intriguing. Yes, it is. So let's talk about the time frame we're in in relation to the Revolutionary War. And I'll let you tell the story of what Bet overheard the lawyer Sedgwick talking about. But can you first say about what year that was? In 1773. So before the actual American Revolution starts, but, but very close, we are at the point where many people in the colonies are talking about freedom, about liberty, about we don't want to be ruled over by a tyrant. So in the community of Sheffield, John Ashley was obviously a very prominent citizen. And there were men in the community who were gathering together even at 
actually home to discuss how much they didn't like the British rules and the things that were happening to the colonies. So in 1773, many of the prominent men of Sheffield were gathering together to discuss their grievances against the British crown, against British parliament, the taxes, and they drafted a document that's called the Sheffield Declaration. So it's in 1773, earlier than the Declaration of Independence in 1776 by Thomas Jefferson. But it's the same kind of thing. It's just on a smaller scale. So John Ashley was the chosen moderator of this group that did this. Many of the meetings were in his home. Where Elizabeth Freeman, she would have been there. She would have been serving the drinks, serving the food, cleaning up after them. So she could have overheard all of their conversations on this subject. The final declaration includes this sentence. It says, resolved that mankind in a state of nature are equal, free, and independent of each other and have a right to the undisturbed enjoyment of their lives, their liberty, and property. Now, of course, the men who drafted this and put it together were not thinking about it in relation to women like Bet. They were thinking about it in relation to themselves and the British government. But this document was shared. Now, Bet was, was never literate, um, but there were many people, including many people who were not slaves, who also never learned to read. So these were read out loud in public places. So even though she didn't read it, she heard the discussions and she certainly heard it when it was announced to everyone. And that sentence caught her, caught her ear. And she said, well, doesn't, doesn't that mean that I ought to be free? She didn't sue for freedom immediately. Things were changing in the area. She probably didn't know how to go about it. So it isn't until after the war has started, it's in 1780 that she decides, you know, those words really mean that I should not be a slave. And by this point, she has not only the Sheffield Declaration, but the Massachusetts State Constitution has been written by John Adams. And it contains very similar language. She probably heard that read out loud, though that wasn't written in Sheffield. But it is in place, and she decides that she can do something about this now. So in the year 1780, she goes to the home of Theodore Sedgwick. Now, Theodore Sedgwick is a young and rising lawyer in the town. He's also a signatory to the Sheffield Declaration. So he was there when it was written. And she asks him about these words from it. And she says, doesn't that mean I should be free? Will you help me? Now, of course, she didn't have any money to hire an attorney, but he says he will take her case anyway, which he does with his partner, Tapping Reeve, and to court against John Ashley. And this is significant because there have been some cases about slavery in the courts before, but usually they were based on things like you enslaved someone who shouldn't have been a slave, or you promised freedom in a will and it, you know, it wasn't granted. It was things like that, that there was a miscarriage of justice. This one doesn't say Bet should never have been a slave. It just says there shouldn't be slaves, period. That's all there is to it. And the Constitution of Massachusetts supports that. But this was the case that made it precedent in Massachusetts and led the way to abolition within Massachusetts. So she initiated her discussion with Sedgwick in 1780. I believe, though, the trial was in 1781. Yes. Yes, that is true. 
Uh, Lori, where would a trial of this nature be held? Because you're in a fairly remote, I assume, community in Western Mass. Did they have to travel to other areas for the courthouse or was this case actually held in Sheffield? As far as I know, it was held in Sheffield. That is my understanding. Oh, interesting. Yes. So Sedgwick decided to add another plaintiff to the case. So the actual name of the case is Brom and Bet versus Ashley. Brom was an enslaved man in the same household. The presumption among historians is that Sedgwick probably did that because he didn't want anyone to come back and say something like she's just a woman, so it doesn't matter. He wanted to put a man on the front of it, but it was Bet's idea. It was her pushing for this to happen. So they go to court and we do have the court records of the trial. Not as detailed as you would have nowadays. It's not an exact word-for-word transcript. Uh, But we do have the judgment where they said, you're right, you should not be a slave. So she had won. Brahm and Bet were awarded 30 shillings in damages, which is not a lot when you consider 40 years of slavery. But it was something, and freedom. They were also awarded six pounds in court costs that John Ashley had to pay. Now, he did file an appeal, but he withdrew it. I I think he could tell the public sentiment was against him. Abolitionism was rising in Massachusetts, though not further south, but in Massachusetts it was. So he withdrew his appeal. There's even a story that afterwards he asked Bet if she would come back and he would pay her to work for him. And she said, no. A very wise decision, right? Yes. I don't think I would have gone back to that household. No, definitely not. Work for Annette, even for pay. (laughs) So what she did instead was she went to work for Theodore Sedgwick. He was also hiring, but she was paid to do the household work and to care for the Sedgwick children. And that is where she lived for most of the rest of her life. She spent several decades living with the Sedgwick family. Now, uh, as I recall, she had a close relationship with one of the Sedgwick daughters. And was it her, the daughter, that recorded some of Bet's story? Yes. So besides the, the court records that we have, our other major source for her whole story is an article that was published in 1853, so quite a bit later, by Catherine Maria Sedgwick. Catherine Maria Sedgwick was a very popular novelist of her time. But she published this article called Slavery in New England, and most of it is focused around a woman she remembered very fondly as Mum Bet or Mother Bet, because this was her nanny, this was her governess, if you like, who took care of her and her siblings when she was a child. So most of our details, you know, about the kitchen incident and all of those other things come through Catherine Maria Sedgwick much later after Bet passes away. And then uh, you had told me some very interesting stories. And going back to the Revolutionary War, there was uh, some brave stances that Bet took at the Sedgwick homestead. I think there was some people who came in to attack it. Yes. So after the Revolutionary War, the United States got the Articles of Confederation, which was a very loose, comparatively weak government. Unfortunately, it didn't work very well. There were still, there was still a lot of unrest. There were a lot of revolutionary soldiers who hadn't been compensated very well. 
taxes were higher than they thought they should be when they had just won the war. So there was a lot of unrest, a lot of people being foreclosed on, a lot of people hungry. So Shays Rebellion is something that happened within Massachusetts. It's named for Daniel Shays, who was one of the leaders, but he really was only one of, of many leaders. It was not really a very organized rebellion at all. But these were men who would travel around. They uh, sometimes sacked courthouses. They attacked prominent officials, such as Theodore Sedgwick, to, to try to make their displeasure and really, to some extent, their desperation known. They were, they were truly suffering. So Sedgwick was often away from home because he was fulfilling his duties in the government as uh, a prominent attorney. The family was sometimes also away. Uh, one of the things that when you look into it, I think one of the reasons that Catherine so looked up to Mumbet is her own mother, Pamela Sedgwick, had what we would now call clinical depression. Mm-hmm. I think she was, I think she was maybe emotionally unavailable a fair amount of the time. She would eventually die by taking her own life. So Mumbet was to some extent the mother figure in that home. She was often the one actually defending the physical property because the others were away, or at least Theodore Sedgwick was away when some of these rebel bands would come to the house. So Elizabeth Freeman was really the one defending the house against these men who would come intent on ransacking it. And Catherine gives us several stories of things that she did to protect the house. So for example, in one, in one instance, she was boiling a big vat of beer over the fireplace in preparation. And when these men came up, she yelled that she would scald the first intruder with boiling beer. And they fled. They ran. On another case, they'd enter the house and they were, they were looking for the family valuables. Where are they? Well, she had stuffed them in her own chest in the servants' quarters and was sitting on it. And, you know, they couldn't find them. It never, it never occurred to them to look in the servants' quarters. Probably be the last place they would look. Right, right. right. They didn't look for it. On another case, she, she shames them. She had some uh, brown stout, a very bitter, a bitter alcoholic drink, not anything that was ready for anyone to actually want to drink. And they were demanding something to drink from her. And she gave them this and they said, well, this tastes terrible. And she says, well, this is what gentlemen drink. You're just too uneducated to realize it. They got very embarrassed and they left again. So there are these multiple stories about how she is, she is the one protecting the house. She is the one safe against these rebel bands. That's a great story. And it's so great that the daughter of the family had recorded this. Yes. So about what year did she pass away? This would have been what, 1810s, 1820s? She actually lived until 1829. Oh. A very long life. Yes. She lived until 1829, and before she died, she had actually saved the money that the Sedgwick family had been paying, paying her, and she bought her own property. She bought a few acres, she had a house, she had a little farm, and she lived there with her uh, descendants until her death in 1829. And let's talk a little bit about her descendants. She had, we think, at least one daughter that lived to adulthood. Yes. So she had a daughter named Elizabeth. There is no anywhere of who the father is. You always have to wonder with a woman who lived in slavery, whether the father was anyone that she wanted to remember. It's possible that it was not, but it's also not really clear when her daughter was born. 
So possibly it was later. We just don't know. She didn't leave any record of who the father was. This daughter, Elizabeth, did have her own children and grandchildren because Elizabeth Freeman left a will. And in it, she leaves her property to her daughter, Elizabeth, and her children and what for Elizabeth would have been her great-grandchildren. So she did have descendants. And as you and I had spoken uh, before we started recording, it would be an interesting task if we could track down any of those descendants to see if any of them were still living today. But as you had mentioned, given uh, who these folks were, the records are so scarce, which is They really are. Yeah, they really are. And that was buried in the Sedgwick family plot. Is that gravestone or marker still visible today? Do you know? Yes. So she is the only non-Sedgwick family member to be buried in the Sedgwick family plot. And the gravestone is is still there, as far as I know. Certainly there are pictures of it online um, with a very nice text left for her by the Sedgwick children who put up the gravestone for her. They, I think they all had fond memories of her. Oh, that's that's very impressive. And I know there was a quote that Bet had that maybe you could read that quote. I think it's a beautiful statement of, of her life and her feelings as being a slave and then being freed later. Sure. So Catherine records in her article that she had many times heard Elizabeth Freeman say, anytime, anytime while I was a slave, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me, And I had been told I must die at the end of that minute. I would have taken it just to stand one minute on God's earth, a free woman. I would. That is a beautiful statement. There's a lot of strength in that statement. Yes. So I think recently, and I'll add uh, some information at the end of this podcast, I believe they've erected a statue to Elizabeth in the town. It's something very recently that happened in the last year or two. And I'll add information on that. But with, with all your research, what anything else you want to add or what really stands out here? And, and what did this leave with you on uh, learning about this amazing woman? Sure. Well, I will say just first that, yes, there's a statue. Um, you can also visit the John Ashley house. The house is still standing. And you can look uh, online. There are some, you know, tourist videos. There's a there's a great video of a curator of the house showing it off. So there are there are multiple multiple ways to to connect with hers. But I think what I really what I really liked about her story was that she really made kind of a leap. We often assume that anyone who was a slave would obviously be an abolitionist and would know that it was wrong, but when you look into the stories of these people, often they they really didn't didn't make that leap. You know, they'd been told I shouldn't be a slave and I can I can find people to help me to make sure that what is right is what actually happens. And she did. She was successful. It's incredible. Lori, I believe you have a copy of the text. It's on her headstone. Can you please read that for us? Sure. What the Sedgwick family children chose to record on her gravestone says, Elizabeth Freeman, known by the name of Mumbet, died December 28th, 1829. Her supposed age was 85 years. She was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere, she had no superior nor equal. She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a truth nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper 
and the tenderest friend. Good mother, farewell. Thank you for that. So, Laurie, I'm intrigued by some of the novels that the Sedgwick daughter wrote. Could you list some of those for us? Sure. She wrote, her, her opening novel was A New England Tale or Sketches of New England Character and Manners. And then she has a number of others, Redwood, Hope Leslie was very popular in its time, Clarence, The Linwoods. None of these are, are novels that really survived in popularity, which is why, you know, you were never to read in school, but was considered a very leading novelist of her time. She was, she was famous. She was popular. She's very successful. I think the thing that indicates to me, number one, that she was very well educated and encouraged probably more so by her father to pursue uh, a career, which would have been unusual in that day and age. So I appreciate that background. Yes. She got support both from her father and also from her brothers afterwards. She never married. She pursued her career and was very involved with her family in terms of her brothers and their children. Were her brothers younger than her? Did she have to assume the role of her mother because maybe her own mother wasn't able to fill that role? She was in the middle. So she had both older and younger brothers. I'm not aware that she really assumed the role of mother because I think it was really Mumbette who did that. That would make sense, definitely. So, Lori, I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of us maybe aren't aware of some of the slavery history in New England, and certainly you've done some research on this and understanding Bet's life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So most of us don't think about slavery in terms of Massachusetts or New England at all, right? We associate it with further south. But there were slaves in New England. The first slave ship in what would become the United States landed in Virginia in 1619, but it didn't take long for it in all directions. So there were slaves in Massachusetts by the 1640s, well before Elizabeth Freeman was ever born. But it was not widespread in the way that we think of, you know, very large plantations with hundreds or even thousands of slaves in the South. In New England, it would have been a household with a handful of slaves. They were never above, the estimate I've read is 2.2% of the population. So certainly far more than there should have been, but not in the same sense that we think of grand plants in the South. Can you tell us when about Massachusetts became primarily abolitionist in the 1800s? So even in the 1700s, there were abolitionists publishing pamphlets in New England and in Massachusetts. And that is why the ideas were kind of in the Sedgwick may have been one of them, though he's not known to have published anything. There's even a record that he may have purchased a slave at one point. Uh, some people have held that against him, but the, the details are not really clear. It's possible he purchased the slave in order to set the slave free. But the ideas were there and present. The Massachusetts Constitution, which was ratified in 1780, clearly had these statements in it about freedom and liberty Bett's case was one of the first that came, but not the only one. So there are several judicial precedents in the very early 1780s saying, nope, you can't have slaves. You can't have slaves. So really, even by the time we start the 1800s, there was a great deal of public sentiment and saying that you cannot have slaves in the state of Massachusetts. All right. That's very helpful. And that, that gives us a good context. So, Lori, thank you so much for being on the People Hidden in History podcast series. This has been a fascinating tale about Elizabeth Freeman. 
Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Many thanks to Kathleen for the interview. I hope all of you will check out the People Hidden in History podcast. You can find it on peoplehiddeninhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Kathleen can also be found on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I have links to all of these in the show notes and on my website, herhalfofhistory.com. Next week is a special event for me as well. It will be my 100th episode. Wow, I never expected to make it this far. To commemorate, I have prepared a comedy sketch with a brief recap of all 10 series that I have done. It'll be a whirlwind tour of women's history. If you don't think I'm funny, don't worry, I didn't write it. Or at least, I sort of didn't write it. You'll see what I mean next week. Don't miss it. Thanks. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.